If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hi, welcome home. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> you live here. Yep. How was your trip? Um, it was fabulous, thank you for asking. Even though, I, I mean, you did ask me 24 hours ago when you picked me up from the airport. That's true. This was just a clever way for me to lead into the story that you told me in the car on the way home. Oh, yes. So I went to Maine for a couple of days. Uh, our fellow freak and friend, Amber, is getting married. And so I went up for her bridal shower and bachelorette party, which were amazing. Uh, several things went wrong <laughs> during the trip. First of all, uh, my flight up was delayed by several hours because, first and foremost, the plane's navigation system wasn't working, so we had to deboard the plane. That's kind of an important part of flying a plane. It's a big deal, though I have ways, so I don't know why they couldn't have just used my phone to... Anyway, um, and then the next plane that they put us on, I guess the captain's chair was broken, and so they were like, nope, get off this plane too. So we had to get back into the gate and wait around. It was a whole thing anyway. What does it say about the airline <laughs> when the captain's chair breaks? Well, here's the thing is, you know, someone broke that chair, mm. and it was probably the last captain who sat in it and he didn't say anything <laughs> come on that's just rude that's not how you be a good captain that's very uncaptain -like. that's very bad captainy so getting on to this flight and uh, going through tsa of course and i have i'm very fortunate to have tsa pre-check thank you very much it saved my life on multiple occasions and i went through and the beautiful young lady who's helping me through says you're all set and i said thank you and she said have a great flight and i said you too. <laughs> now I cannot go through that airport ever again. No, I understand your feeling of embarrassment because while you were gone, I was eating out a lot and I was going through a drive through and the uh, guy in the drive through window said over the speaker, that'll be 1740. Please pull ahead to the second window. And I said, thanks. Love you. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the odd thing was, I really was feeling love for him. Well, sure. He was point. bringing you your delicious sesame seed bun sandwich. Mm. Those are always the most awkward. <laughs> and you know they hear it all the time. And you're like, you know what I mean? And then they're like, yeah, I, know, I mean, I get it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it happens. Now I feel like I need a shower reliving that humiliation. Well, I think it's really endearing when you humiliate yourself in public. So mm, thank you. I'm just really glad you're home. Me too. Um, it's a commonly accepted scientific theory that human beings first arrived in North America somewhere around 14,000 years ago. The theory of course, is that the original Native Americans came to North America from Eurasia and they crossed the Bering Straits land bridge that connected Alaska with modern-day Siberia. Asia. This was at a time when sea levels were exceedingly low because it was the Ice Age. It was the last Ice Age. But now there's extremely convincing evidence that uh, human beings migrated to the Americas at a much, much much earlier time. Ooh, three muches. Three muches, that's how much. The last major ice age lasted from about 26,000 to 18,000 years ago. And until recently, it was commonly accepted that travelers from Eurasia moved across to the edge of the uh, Bering Strait and then migrated as far as they could. But the path to the Americas was blocked by glaciers. They only got so far. So when temperatures warmed and glaciers began to retreat, it uh, left an alley or a pathway along the Pacific seacoast and into the Americas. And this is what allowed the migration to move forward, allowing the immigrants from Eurasia to move through North, Central, and ultimately South America. These people are referred to as the Clovis culture. Incredible. There has been a recent discovery that now challenges that timeline. A few years ago, a discovery was made in New Mexico, uh, here in the U.S. During the Ice Age in New Mexico, there was a large lake that has since, of course, vanished. Mm. Along that ancient shoreline of the lake, a team of researchers discovered multiple human footprints embedded in rock. Wow. Of course, the rock being once the sandy, muddy shores of this Ice Age lake. The footprints were found in what is known as the Tularosa Basin, which is located in White Sands National Park in New Mexico. And White Sands, of course, a desert. Uh, but many, many millennia ago, during the Ice Age, it was a lush, fertile area teeming with wildlife. Aww. And apparently human beings. This was way before they should have been there. And it's strange enough to see human footprints in stone, essentially fossils, since in order for any tracks that were made in a muddy lake bed to turn to stone, it takes an exceptionally long period of time. But at the time of the discovery, they had no way to determine exactly beyond a shadow of a doubt how old these footprints were. Sure. But now they do. In a recent edition of the Science Journal, Matthew Bennett of the Bournemouth University in the UK and a member of the team of British and American geologists have successfully dated these footprints. Now, how they did that was really pretty interesting. In studying the fossil footprints, which again, they've had for a few years, they discovered some plant samples embedded in the footprints in the rock. 
And they were able to use radiocarbon dating techniques to accurately date when these footprints were created. And it appears as though the footprints were made... I can tell just by the way that your speech patterns are being formed at this moment Mm -hmm. that you are ready to land some mind-blowing material on my brain. That's what I'm attempting to do. These footprints were made by adolescents or children along this muddy lakeshore. This was the first in-depth analysis. They were able to identify seeds from a plant commonly referred to as ditch grass embedded in the footprints. And they were deeply ingrained. It seems as though the young people, young humans at the time, who made the footprints had walked through ditch grass before crossing the soft ground near the lake. And because of those seeds, they were able to radiocarbon date them, telling geologists exactly when the footprints were made. Again, the common theory accepted is that the immigrants from Eurasia reached Alaska about 14,000 years ago. Okay. And it was many thousands of years after that that they migrated as far south as modern-day New Mexico. The geologists' radiocarbon dating pinpoints the footprints to have been made at about 23,000 years ago. Wow. It's a revolutionary discovery and pushes the timeline back about 10,000 years earlier than we believed that the first that the first immigrants arrived in in the Americas. This is a major conflict with the previous timeline for the arrival of the first immigrants over the Bering Land Bridge. They found several seeds in several different layers, which according to Jeff Pagotti and Kathleen Springer, members of the U.S. Geological Survey that did this study, said, quote, Our dates on the seeds are tightly clustered and maintain stratigraphic order above and below multiple footprint horizons. This is a remarkable outcome. The lead author of the study, a guy named Matthew Bennett, told NBC News it's the earliest unequivocal evidence for humans in the Americas. University of Oxford radiocarbon dating specialist Thomas Heigman said, quote, I think the evidence is very convincing and extremely exciting. Now, he didn't participate in the study directly, so he didn't have any any bias. But he had been involved in other investigations relating to the arrival of first people in the Americas. Now, this doesn't prove that the Bering Strait theory is false. It's likely just part of the story. The dating of the footprints is perhaps the best evidence of a human presence in the Americas earlier than expected, but certainly not the only evidence. Mm. And in a previous episode, do you remember I talked about this? DNA testing supports this. In fact, Thomas Heigman, again, uh, was the co-leader of one of these studies. His team of researchers used genetic, climate, archaeological, and radioactive dating data that they collected from 42 North American archaeological sites. Say that three times fast. I'd rather not. (laughs) And uh, they've been able to calculate a time frame for human occupation in the migration to the Americas. And it corresponds with these findings of the footprints. 2020 University of Oxford press release said, quote, the first Americans came from Eastern Eurasia. And it looks as though there was a surprisingly early movement of people to into the continent. These people that traveled into these new lands must have come by sea because the northern parts of North America were impenetrable and sealed off from eastern Eurasia by a massive ice sheet. 
until 13,000 years ago. Oh, so they're not saying that these people came across the Bering Strait at this time to then tootle down to New Mexico before we thought that they did. They're saying that, yes, the Bering Strait peoples did make their way across, but there was another way that people were making their way to the West Coast slash... Yes. Okay, got it. Exactly. It seems very likely that those children who created the footprints in that muddy bank of an Ice Age lake in New Mexico were descended from those who arrived traveling by boat from a launching point somewhere on the Bering Land Bridge. So they got as far as they could... And before the glaciers started retreating, some of them got in boats and they sailed far enough south to get past any glacier obstacles. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, they would have had to have landed in what is now California or Baja, California. And from that jumping off point, they moved inland. But now there has been another exciting discovery in modern day Mexico. Archaeologist Dr. Cyprian Ardalin discovered more than 19,000 stone tools at an excavation in a cave that were buried at many different levels. They've used various scientific dating techniques that tell them, initially, this is what they're finding, the tools were left in the cave by humans who had lived there continuously for thousands of years, starting as early as 33,000 years ago. What? Now, it's important to note that these discoveries have been greeted with skepticism. Sure. But that's common when established beliefs are questioned. And it's good that we do this because it fleshes out the research and eliminates any miscalculations. So far, they cannot disprove any of this. Experts say that the implications are impossible to ignore, that this case is undeniable. In regards to the footprints in New Mexico, the radiocarbon dating has what's being called revolutionary implications. Either way, it shows that we still have an awful lot to learn. And as scientific testing and dating techniques become more sophisticated, the closer and closer we're getting to an answer. And that answer could be something that we totally do not expect. My source information came from the University of Oxford Press release, the journal Nature, Ancient Origins, a Bournemouth University press release, and the Science Journal. That's really interesting. So it's remarkable to think that uh, modern science theory is that uh, it was 14,000 years ago and Eurasians tootled across the Bering Strait Bridge and down into the Americas. And now they're saying it could be more than twice as long. Mm. We could have been here as many as 33,000 years ago. And that is mind blowing. It sure is. It also makes me wonder, like, wouldn't it at all be possible that, I don't know, they came from elsewhere i don't know aliens is oh that's really probably it what i was thinking yeah not that the immigrants were aliens but that aliens picked them up on the bearing straits mm-hmm. and flew them over and just zoop, yeah. Zoop, yeah hashtag a-a-t-s-y what's that mean ancient alien theorists uh, say yes <laughs> I've seen that hashtag many times on <laughs> you your You never posts. knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I never knew what that like was. Two years later. Yeah, ancient alien. I, I'm right dude. in the house, you know. You I, can always ask me things. <laughs> I'm too busy telling the drive through guy I love him. <laughs> the Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. Back in the mid-1800s, there was a man named Thomas Austin who lived in Australia. Thomas was an avid hunter, so in 1859, he released 24 rabbits into the wild for sport hunting. He would later regret that decision, as would everyone else in Australia, because in just 70 years, the rabbit population had grown to 10 billion rabbits. Kimberly sent us an email, Cat and JG, you wanted ideas to celebrate your 500th episode. I have some ideas to share with you. Yes, you, please. You could do this on the podcast. Number one, you each stuff 250 pieces of gum in your mouth <laughs> one at a time throughout the length of the podcast. Cat did that with crackers once and almost died. No, that was a croissant from Dunkin' Donuts. Number two, drink 500 sips of beer. You get drunker as you go. Oh my God. Clearly, you've never listened to any of our bonus episodes on Patreon. Um, number three, try to put 500 pieces of clothing on and do a short relay race. <laughs> number four, make a compilation of one of each of your laughs and sassy comments from each episode in order of release and play it on, on the air. That's way too much work. Oh, really. my God. That would be fun, though. And her uh, final comment is, uh, send me $500 because you're kind and it's a nice thing to do. <laughs> Kim from Salem, Mass. Fair enough. All right. Some of those are excellent suggestions. They are indeed. Oh, I also wanted to uh, read this email. This came from Amber. My Amber? No, different Amber. Okay. I start podcasts from the beginning, and I am now up to episode 135 of the Box of Oddities, where Kat talks about Amy Bradley's disappearance. Yes, that was one that always sticks with me. She disappeared on a cruise, and it was really unclear, and mm. still is, whether or not she's still out there. Amber goes on to say, she's my cousin. <gasps> my entire childhood all I heard when I visited certain relatives was about Amy and how that she was still alive. Was crazy to hear y'all talk about such a close to home topic for me. Wow. Thanks to her, I will never get on a cruise ship. Wow. Well, mm. I don't blame you. That is yeah. traumatic for a child. I'm sorry you had to go through that. It never ceases to amaze me when somebody close to a story that we've done an episode on reaches out to us. It just, it blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's bananas. Hey Matt, did you know that Wombat's poop cubes 
Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to Zen, my friends. Bye bye. I'll be seeing you. So, Air Fryers, am I right? This is the Box of Oddities. So what do you have for me, young lady? Well, interestingly, mine is also like archaeological, historical kind of business. Nice. Yes. So when I was flying up to Maine, I sat next to a man named Patty, and we discussed... Uh, a lot of things. He had a wild life and a wild story to tell. So I, I mostly listened to his incredible life story. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he talked about was his many travels. And one of the things that he tries to find when he's in various places are dolmens. What is that? A dolmen is a type of single chamber megalithic tomb. Hmm. Dolmens are made of two or more upright stones with a single stone laying across them. Okay. The large flat stone on top might be referred to as a horizontal capstone or a table, and they're sometimes covered with earth, kind of like a man-made cave. Like an earthen mound like we have in... in, uh in the Midwest here in the U.S., there are several sites that uh, that fit that description pretty well. Yes, exactly. In many cases, the covering has eroded, which leaves only the stone skeleton remaining. Um, Stonehenge can be described as dolmens. It's made up of dolmens. Okay. Again, those, those tall stones mm-hmm. that we recognize with the big, oh, geez, I punched the window again, with that big, long stone on top. There is quite a bit of diversity in these monument types, but they do share a number of common characteristics. 
They all consist of a large capstone or capstones supported by a number of smaller upright stones. And the collection of stones creates an enclosed chamber area. The chambers of dolmens can vary in shape and size. Uh, Some are very small boxes, while others are tall and long enough for people to get in and walk around and move about inside of them. You can find lots of examples of dolmens in Northwest Europe that date from the early Neolithic period, which is the final division of the Stone Age, you know, between 3000, 4000 BCE. The Neolithic is characterized by fixed human settlements and the invention or, or, or commonization of agriculture. And that makes sense that they're making these permanent structures during this time when they're starting to build permanent settlements and, you know, plant crops. There are sites in Central and Southern Europe uh, that were constructed at a similar date, Middle or Late Neolithic in those areas. So a little bit later in history. And these were tombs? In many cases. Outside of Europe, dolmens were built over a broad date range, and they actually continue to be made in some parts of the world. Like there's an island called Sumba in Indonesia, and they're still building dolmens. And even with modern technology, I can't figure out how you do that with the rocks. How do you get it up Yeah, I know. There, it's... Again... Yeah. Aliens. No, jeez. So the most widely known dolmens are found in, as I said, Northwest Europe, uh, notably uh, Brittany, France, Southern Scandinavia, Britain, Ireland, and the Low Countries. Dolmens make up uh, Stonehenge, as I said, and they're also found at sites in Central and Southern Europe, particularly in the Iberian Peninsula, Switzerland, Italy, and the islands of the Mediterranean. Hmm. Dolmens are also known from parts of Africa and Asia. So this is something that has culturally spread from, well, to all corners of the world. All corners. And over a long period of time. Well, you know, again, I don't understand time for the most part at all. Mm. Um, So maybe it's not. But to me, it seems like a very short period of time when you consider how slowly migration tends to happen with humans. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It's happened before. (laughs) The Korean Peninsula is home to over 35,000 dolmens, accounting for approximately 40% of the world's total, which is mind-blowing when you consider, you know, when you think of dolmens, I think of Northwest Europe. Okay, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Stonehenge and what have you. Yeah, and, you know, I've been to some because I had the privilege of visiting Ireland, and so I got to see some of these uh, amazing mound tombs and yeah it's but that's maybe why i picture that part of the world but they're everywhere the gochang huasan and gahua dolmen sites are the location of hundreds of stone dolmens which were used as grave markers and for ritual purposes during the first millennium can i just say every time you say the word dolmen i picture dole whip (laughs) oh can we go to the parks sure thank you i want one of the pineapple and vanilla swirls. Mm. These sites in Korea were designated as World Heritage Sites by UNESCO in 2000. 
And in these particular instances, the stones are invaluable because they mark the graves of the ruling elite. And that seems to be pretty common. It's the the higher ups in these cultures are these are their tombs. Whereas the average person would not have such uh, an elaborate tomb or burial site. Exactly. Archaeologists have also found artifacts like pottery and animal bones and hearths, indicating that dolmens were the sites of other activities, including like feasts and celebrations. Or maybe they were garbage dumps. Maybe. Throwing away their leftover bones and stuff. Right. Speaking of which, if I get some time this summer, I'm going to go and dig in the dumps behind my mom's place. Okay. See if I can find some more milk of magnesia bottles. You had quite a collection going there for a while. Ah. Anyway. Over 3,000 dolmens can be found in the northwestern Caucasus region in Russia, and there are more and more discovered each year. And some of those are related to the Maykop culture. This was a great city of dolmens that was built along the shores of the Black Sea. And the inhabitants of these dolmens were metal workers. So they were used as like vaults or safes for gold, silver, bronze, jewels, and other treasures that they would build these special spaces for and and keep them safe. So kind of an Iron Age uh, banking system. Yeah, kind of like a subterranean Gringotts. But (laughs) you kids with your Harry Potter. (laughs) But uh, approximately 3,000 of these have been identified. Some of them, though, were used for human burial. So, you know, little of this, little of that. The Dhananapeta megalithic dolmen near Amadala Lavasa in India is the world's largest capstone dolmen with 36 feet in length and 14 feet in width and two feet of thickness. It's from the early Iron Age and it's enormous. Dolmens can be found in Israel, in Palestine, in Lebanon, Syria, Iran, and Jordan. There are numerous large dolmens in the Israeli National Park. Sounds like a great place to store money from the Navarro cartel before you launder it. Wow, we're really on a kick. All right, that's the last Ozark reference. No, there's no way. We've only got like four episodes left. You know we're going to talk about it at length when we finish this series. Anyway, it's unclear when, why, and by whom the earliest dolmens were made, but the oldest known were found in Western Europe dating from about 7,000 years ago. Wow. Wow. And what's neat is, as I said, they're found all over the world and used for a variety of purposes. These have a lot to teach us. There are thousands of dolmens in the southern Levant, mainly in Israel, Jordan, and Syria, and generally they are undecorated. But art was discovered on the dolmens in northern Israel, and it could indicate that there was a lost culture living there that we have yet to learn about. Oh, now we're talking. Panels showing horned animals carved into the ceiling of the Bronze Age structures could attest to a very powerful unknown, yet unknown, I should say, civilization of nomads who lived there at an incredible time in history. I love that idea. Yes. I think this is really interesting. And I think that we should go on a quest. For dolmens? Yeah, to see all the dolmens. All right. And eat all the Dole Whip. All right. I don't think I'd want to be buried in a dolmen, but uh, I would like to be buried in Dole Whip. (laughs) Just up to my neck. 
You know, what I've heard about the enzymes in pineapple, I don't think you'd last very long. <laughs> That's the idea. I got most of my information from Heritage Daily, from the Haaretz, from Wikipedia, of course, and Britannica. Hey, before we close, we got some pretty cool mail. Oh, my gosh. So I was able to scootle over to our UPS box in Bangor and pick up some mail. And when I got back, I also had mail here. Man, we are inundated with amazing mail. Here, I'll grab some of it. Well, first and foremost, uh, Kat got her custom knife. <gasps> it's so beautiful. Bailey Knives in New York made this for her, especially for her. And uh, wow, it's fancy. This is one you never, never should take to the airport. I will never. Because they'll take it away. It's beautiful weight. Uh, it's absolutely the perfect weight. Gorgeously made. Is that a word? Gorgeously? It's got the Bailey marker on the inside of the blade and it's just, oh, it moves so smoothly. It's beautiful. It's so sharp. <laughs> and I'm going to keep it in my purse, um, though only when I'm not going somewhere. We also got a couple of things from Britt, who sent us a t-shirt that says, I'm here for the booze, which yes. delighted me. And then that um, bow tie came from her as well. The one that says boo on it. Yeah, yes. That's pretty cool. It's amazing. Kess sent this letter along with uh, a gift. I'm currently a full-time student. This term, I received a voucher to the student bookstore, which is basically a scholarship slash gift card that only works in the bookstore. After purchasing all of, all of my books for class, I still had some money left on the voucher. This is free money. <laughs> and I'm not about to let it go to waste. Luckily, the bookstore has other things such as school branded clothing, markers and book sets. Long story short, I saw this set and thought of the friends that I'd never met before. Hope you enjoy it. And she sent uh, the three-volume set of the uh, narrative of the Civil War written by Shelby Foote, which basically was the premise for the Ken Burns Civil War documentary. In fact, Shelby Foote is in all nine episodes of that. It's beautiful and um, <clears throat> it was not cheap. So thank you, yeah, because thank you. I saw the price tag oh on it. And uh, <laughs> um, we also received a very cool book called Our Paranormal Planet, written by Stephen Bogdan. Thank you so much. And I cannot wait to dig into this because this looks really cool. This came from Carl, but we can't talk about it because it's going to be a topic later. Oh. And this came from Rob, but we can't talk about it because it's going to take too long. So we'll share that at a <laughs> different time and i also got some earrings from hannah farling and they're amazing so and thanks to all of you who sent uh, correspondence and gifts we you know we we never expect gifts at all but we certainly do appreciate each and every one hearing from you guys whether it's uh, it's in the mail like that or email curator at the box of oddities.com or just any of our social media sites that you can access along with everything else that has to do with the box of oddities at our website theboxofoddities.com we'll see you next time until then keep flying that freak flag fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. 
also subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.